Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is a recording of a panel that took place in the garden of the Berlin Club About Blank back in July. The venue is running a series of talks with the support of Berlin Music Board under the name Amplified Kitchen. The title of this edition was Club of Fear, Freedom or Security and Do We Need to Choose? It was convened in the wake of attacks on music venues in Paris, Manchester, Orlando and elsewhere and asked questions about the tension between freedom and security in club culture. It was moderated by RA staff writer Angus Finlayson and included Luis Manuel Garcia, Celine de Grave, and Christine Preiser, who expand the issue from a club context into a broader discussion of privacy in society. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange on club freedom and security is up next. So hello everybody um, and welcome to this installment of uh, the Amplified Kitchen, the second of this year, uh, supported by Music Board Berlin. The topic today is Club of Fear, Freedom or Security, Do We Need to Choose? Now, recent attacks on, on music venues in Paris, Orlando, Istanbul, Manchester, um, at BPM Festival in Mexico have led to concerns in other cities where we might have previously considered um, nightlife to be safe from these kinds of attacks. Um, so the questions we're asking this evening are, should we be concerned by these attacks? If so, what should we do about it? Um, and above all, I think we should explore these, these two concepts, freedom and security, um, in relation to club culture. Um, what are the freedoms uh, afforded to us by nightlife spaces? Um, who benefits from them? Uh, and in protecting these freedoms, uh, whose definition of security do we accept? Because I think there's a few different definitions um, in play. Um, so I am uh, Angus Finlayson. I'm a, a staff writer at Resident Advisor here in Berlin. Um, and we have three other speakers here on the panel this evening. Uh, Luis Manuel Garcia is a lecturer in ethnomusicology and popular music studies at the University of Birmingham. Um, he researches electronic dance music scenes um, and Berlin has often been uh, the focus of his study. He also has written a series of in-depth features for RA, 
including uh, an alternative history of sexuality in club culture and an examination of drugs policies in relation to electronic music culture and is also involved in two collectives here in Berlin, Room for Resistance, which describes itself as a family night of queer friends and friendly strangers and whose next event is happening in this very club um, this Saturday. And uh, La Mission, uh, which is a collective and label which seeks to bring sociopolitics and collectivism back into the gluttonous world of electronic dance music. Uh, so that's Luis Manuel. Uh, Céline de Grave is a consultant on culture and entertainment for brands, startups and public institutions, an organizer of uh, the National Nightlife Conference, which is happening in Paris in September. Is that right? She was previously in charge of operations and PR at Le Comptoir Général, which is a cultural venue in Paris. Um, and she was working there when the uh, 2015 attacks happened in the city. Uh, so she's experienced firsthand the effects of um, that such an attack can have on, on the nightlife of a city. Uh, and Christina Preiser um, is a sociologist and a PhD candidate at the Max Planck Institute in Freiburg. She's about to finish writing her thesis on bouncers and the re-establishment of order. Uh, focusing on questions of space, conflict management, and the relation between public and private security. Uh, so thank you, all, all three of you, for coming. Um, so I think uh, that this conversation has the potential to get quite abstract. Um, these ideas that we're discussing, uh, we're looking for, um, for universals, perhaps, um, in terms of how we understand club culture, what it is that that we value in it, what it is that we want to protect. So I wanted to start with something a little more concrete um, and to talk to you, Celine, about the, um, the effects that the attacks in Paris had on, on nightlife in the city. So could you perhaps just um, describe the way that things changed after the attacks and the kinds of challenges that, that were faced by nightlife in the city? So thank you for inviting me to the, this talk. To go right to the point, I was, as you said, uh, in charge of operation and communication at Le Comptoir Général. Uh, Le Comptoir Général, if you don't know it, is a big venues uh, close to Canal Saint-Martin in the center of Paris. It welcomes 300,000 visitors per year, so it's quite big. The most important is it attracts a lot of tourists. When the attack occurred, it was in November 2015. Well, it was a shock, <laughs> of course. I was personally dining in a restaurant nearby, Le Bataclan, and it took me a couple of hours to be able to get to Le Comptoir because everything was closed. And when I arrived, we had locked maybe four or five hundred people because there were the clients that were at Le Comptoir and also people that were afraid because one of the restaurants concerned by the attack, uh, Le Petit Cambodge, was just like 50 meters away. Anyway, the day after that, nothing happened in Paris. Everything was closed. Nobody was in the street. Everybody was just like mourning. We had lost uh, some friends. The day after that, it was a Sunday, something happened. All the people wanted to say, we're still here, we're not afraid. And it was a rather sunny day, even we were in November, and the terraces were crowded uh, close to République. And when I went out Le Comptoir on this Sunday night, we organized a gig and people were quite happy. There was a confusion. Somebody just believed that there was some uh, uh, gunshot 
at Place de la République, and I saw people running and even diving uh, in uh, Canal Saint-Martin. And uh, a few minutes after, the streets were empty again. And it lasted for a few weeks, actually. And as a director, you first have to handle your own staff, because they were there. Some of them even went to the restaurant where the attack occurred, just to help uh, people. So they were very shocked. But some of them on uh, forced holidays and uh, rapidly um, resort to a psychologist to help them just like express what they lived. And it took time for them to be reassured again to come to work. You should know that the mood in your venue really depends on your staff because they are in front of public and uh, depending on their mood, if they're happy, if they're likely to speak to people, it can really give uh, the mood of your evening and make the evening be a, a success or not. So we really worked on that and uh, for that we had to reinforce uh, security um, measures. Actually, the police get in touch with every venue uh, to give very precise uh, stuff to do. Among them, we had to, of course, clean all the exit doors, uh, even create new exit doors if needed, uh, to prevent people from sitting. That's what people used to do in Le Comptoir General, because if there is a panic movement, then it can be very dangerous. And they ask us, we already had guards uh, to manage the entrance of Le Comptoir, but they asked to uh, equip the guards with a bulletproof jacket and uh, also to search people very deeply to be sure um, there is no weapon or whatsoever coming into the club. So... The consequence, it was that it both reassured staff and visitors because they saw that, okay, there was security measure, even if, to be honest, I'm not sure it would have prevented a real attack to occur. But, and we had to keep this uh, very strong uh, policy for several months. And uh, after a time, you could see that it was a constant reminder to see this guard with a bulletproof jacket and to, to be told, not, do not sit here or do not stand here. And uh, we, we could feel it had a, an impact uh, on the, the behavior of uh, visitors. And to give you a bigger picture of the nightlife in Paris, the thing is, uh, I think the tourists' traffic dropped from more than 50% in the year 2016, so it was long and it's a big uh, drop. As a consequence, a lot of venues, but also museums and all the stuff that tourists visit when they come to Paris, uh, lived a very deep economic crisis. And then you come to a point where you have to, I don't know, make some works, engage some guards and whatsoever, but you don't have money to do that because it costs money, of course. And uh, there was no specific support from public authorities to help. Uh, so I think that uh, maybe it was 25 or 30% of the small venues that closed, some of them 
for a few months, uh, other permanently. I have to say that for one year, it was very weird to go out in Paris. The first time I went back to a gig, the first thing I did was to spot where the exit doors were and to figure out if an attack occurs, where the terrorist would, cut f would come from and where I should stand, not to be among the first victim, enough time to escape. When you realize that you are in this state of mind, uh, going to a gig or a party or whatsoever, uh, you can really wonder, I am still happy to go out. I am still happy to party. There was no magical recipe, really. Uh, I think it's time that helped people to maybe come back to a kind of reality. Uh, some of the measures were softened uh, so that it was not a constant reminder to see the bulletproof jacket and so on. Actually, the City Hall of Paris made a great work to promote the destination, the security measure, and that Paris was a great city to visit again. And it, it helps to a certain extent. As professional of nightlife, at bouncers and tenants, uh, we also try to organize. And for example, we implemented uh, uh, an event that lasted three weeks called Le Remontant. Uh, Le Remontant in French is when you take a very strong uh, shot of alcohol and then you feel better. And actually, maybe the months after the attack, people came back, Parisians came back, not tourists, Parisians came back. But they had a trend to drink a lot, a lot more than they did before, because they wanted to forget, relax, uh, forget the fear, I don't know what. So as tenants who had the responsibility uh, to manage uh, this kind of consummation that we never experienced before. And that's why we launched Le Remontant, just to say that alcohol can make you feel better, but it has to be one shot, and then you relax, and you, take no, you don't take another one. And so every venue uh, had the liberty, to, the freedom to invent its own recipe of Le Remontant. It could be a drink, or a plate, or a product, or whatsoever. And a part of the benefits were uh, given back to victims of attacks associations. I don't know if it really helps people to overcome the fear, uh, but it was important for tenants, professionals of nightlife, to try to do something and to organize, maybe for the first time, uh, to do something together. But really, I think it took 12 months not less, and maybe more, uh, just to feel uh, this mood that we had at Le Comptoir Général come back again. You mentioned um, this drop in tourism in Paris uh, and the economic impact that that had on the entertainment industry, the culture industry. Are you still struggling to get back to the point where you were before? Uh, it really depends, actually, on the, the typology of venues. I think that the one who suffered the most were actually museums, monuments, and all the restaurants and bars that lived from this touristic uh, attraction uh, traffic. I'm not sure they are back to normal right now. Uh, I had the, the figures for Musée d'Orsay, and I think that two or three months ago, they were still missing 30, 20% of the normal frequentation. 
for a venue like Le Comptoir Général, for example, which I know the numbers, uh, after six months, we were back to normal. Maybe we had less international visitors than before. Parisian, at least, came back quite rapidly. And you mentioned in, in some of those schemes you were talking about to uh, try and encourage people to re-enter nightlife or help them to sort of um, get back into a more positive state of mind, that perhaps this involved more collaboration between different parts of, of the city, different organisations, different places, different companies. Do you think that the attacks led to more cooperation to these different entities thinking of themselves as a, as a collective ultimately? Uh, I think it was a reality for maybe three or four months, but afterwards everyone just tried to save its boat and uh, just went back to its own business again. Uh, but what we experienced was the collaboration with uh, the public authorities, especially the police, that uh, organized more like a survey on the, some venues. For example, we make at Le Comptoir Général uh, used to make people queue in the streets and it was uh, obviously something dangerous because it was very easy to, to attack people from here. So we were allowed to make people queue inside the inner court, which we were uh, forbidden before because uh, the neighbors and so on. So there were a few flexibility in regulation to help people protect better their clients. What I could say is it didn't long enough. After a few months, we had to go back and make people queue in the street and so on. But nothing has changed really, so it could happen again. Even if there was a quite efficient organization in the first weeks, in the first months, I think that it got more, not lazy, but uh, more soft with the time. Um, in general, did you find your cooperation with the authorities um, positive? Was that a positive experience? Um, were there points of conflict between your priorities and their priorities um, in terms of trying to do the best for mm. the venue and the people in it? There was different uh, situations. Some of the venues got a very good uh, collaboration with the authorities and especially the big venues because the risk is higher because there are a lot of people there. But I think that uh, you have Actually, in Paris, in Paris, you have a lot of streets with very small bars. Most of them are musical venues, but they are for maybe 50 or 60 people. And uh, then the collaboration was not so great because uh, it was easier for the authorities to collaborate with a few tenants that represented uh, lots of visitors. Uh, but the collaboration was not very efficient with uh, smaller venues. And it even goes to issues and troubles because, you know, where you are in the emergency state, like you, we still are in France, uh, you don't have to respect all the process, you know, to put a penalty or... And there were some abuses, definitely. Um, it would be good to bring in Christina here. Um, so you, your research uh, involved, as I understand it, um, being in the field on the doors of clubs in Germany, I presume, after this point. Um, so could you talk a little bit about what shockwaves were perhaps felt in clubs in other countries in Europe? Were discussions had um, about this event? Um, were, were procedures changed? Um, what were the attitudes towards it? 
perhaps I have to disappoint you because it it didn't happen so much because um, the at least the doors that I uh, had insights into bouncers are quite familiar with dealing with violent behavior of people they are quite familiar in detecting people and they are also quite familiar in these this knowledge that you can't prevent everything so there is always this this moment that you can't control so i think the the, the general feeling wasn't was nothing new and it was also in the everyday routines it's it's not the terror attack that uh, that causes problem but uh, the the usual problems of uh, the con the collaboration or distance to uh, authorities uh, drugs for example um and noise and neighbors all that so it's it was a short discussion also the question okay what what would we actually do if we find somebody something i mean we search people already what would we do if we find a bomb in a in a backpack would we be prepared what do we just do we take it serious uh, as something that really is a bomb but it uh, it went back to normal quite easily i mean maybe there's an interesting question here which is um The, when you think about club security um, embodied in the bouncer, what are they actually providing and, and does it have any relevance whatsoever to the kind of attack that we're discussing, the kind of things that we're worrying about here, or is that simply not what they're equipped for and not what they're thinking about? It's not the first thought. Just recently, for example, I've been abroad in, in Beirut, uh, which is a crazy nightlife and also uh, a lot of escapism for example because it is it's a crazy country also um, and there of course the bouncers are equipped with metal detectors and all that but still the security steps that you take at the door they are not really complex it's just uh, it's it's more this feeling okay there is somebody with a metal detector uh, there is a bouncer who's taking care but that's it it's more the embodiment of security but not the actual knowledge that you could really prevent something as you said um, because you you simply don't know i think uh if you take a look at studies or experiences from cities that actually experience quite a lot of attacks um there's one for example about jerusalem and they show how uh for example architectural means are taken and also the layering of security are taken as a as a means to prevent terror attacks or to limit the number of victims because you there will always be victims if somebody wants to 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 create an attack so for example uh, there are measures taken for um, that the entrance is quite distant to where the crowd is um, that you have to go through several security checks for example there is a first security then there is after some steps there's another security so you kind of a longer time in the entrance to be observed or there's a queue so you have also time to observe people then there's a tendency to to take architectural measures uh, such as uh, you don't have only huge windows but you have also walls or metal um, constructions uh, to in case of an explosion that uh, people are not hurt too much But if you take a look at the most architectures of most clubs here, this is already taking place. So in, in many venues, it's uh, the case that the entrance is quite distant from the crowd. You Normally you have uh, an entrance, then you go through a, a hallway, for example, or you go through a complicated <laughs> web of, uh, uh, of rooms before you actually come to the dance floor. 
So this is actually, it's already there. You don't have to construct it. And also uh, you have a lot of venues that already have the system of layering security. So you have the selection, then after some steps, for example, you have the, the checking of the bags, then there's the, where you pay the entrance fee. So it's already, it's already there. I mean, we could also, we could add metal detectors and all that, but in the end, it's, it's, it's not discussed as something that, that would actually help. So, um, in your view, or from the, um, the understanding that you have of the situation, there's not much more that clubs in, a, in cities like Berlin could be doing to prepare themselves for this problem that, that they haven't already done, perhaps by coincidence or for other reasons. Yeah, they already have it without thinking about terror because they, are, they have it because they actually, of course, nightlife always contains violence in, in some way or another. So they are already experienced with violence and they are already prepared. Of course, they are not prepared for mass violence such as an actual explosion, which is, of course, different. But the question is, can you prepare for that? I mean, then we should, uh, we have to lock ourselves in bunkers or in metal, metal buildings or stuff like that. And it's the question if we want that. Because, uh, of course, if you, as you said, that if you go to people and say, yeah, you can't sit here, you can't do that, you can't do that, of course, it's, uh, you're taking really intimate um, controls also of people in nightlife. And, uh, and nightlife is a, is a space where people want to not be completely out of control, at least most people, but they want to loosen the constraints of daily control that they already experience. And uh, if you take these overall ideas of control into nightlife, you will destroy its, uh, its very core. Well, this is something that you mentioned, Celine. Although in the first few months, the visible security was in some way reassuring, at some point it tipped and it became a reminder and perhaps something that made people feel uncomfortable. Do you think there is a desire in Paris to actually keep this kind of state security system away from the nightlife spaces to some extent? Is this a discussion that's being had that, you know, we need to counterbalance this need for security with some other need to keep these spaces sort of unintruded upon? I think there is an official discussion to uh, stop the emergency state uh, next November, and not only for nightlife, for basically uh, all areas. I'm not sure that, uh, as Christian say, keep on with uh, more measures or will have an effect on uh, people's mind. Uh, at some point, you are more efficient working on other way to prevent attack uh, attacks from happening rather than uh, making a club or a public venue completely safe from it. And I also think that people, at some point, made calculation because the way the attacks are occurring in Europe is very random and uh, it's not because you will go to this type of venues or listen to this type of music or that you are more safe or not just look at the the teenager uh, singer in uh, in Manchester nobody could have thought of it so people uh, are just uh, uh, saying that, okay, when I take a plane, there is a risk that the plane crash, but it's very few, and it's totally random, uh, so let's go. And at the same way, and this is the way I act on myself, 
just to stop every time I would go to a gig to say, oh, would something happen and so on, is just to figure out how many chins I had today in Paris in one day. Just crossing the street or just, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, coming back uh, home uh, uh, late. Or, and actually, we are permanently at risk. When you go out to party or when we go to a club, this is one more chance uh, you could die or be hurt or and uh, in the end you just uh, integrate this information and well you maybe you more uh, aware uh, at night the same way you are at day just to uh, avoid to be crushed by a bus for example uh, and uh, it can be contrary to the will to lose control uh, but at least for the first hours when you go out at night, it helps you just to say, well, statistically, I'm just uh, like somebody living uh, at the end of the world or sleeping or whatsoever. Uh, and this is the way I worked on myself and I think uh, a few people did. And I'm not sure that uh, if uh, authorities or police or whatsoever um, ask for more measures or or more architectural or whatsoever um, actions, they could do so. It will cost a lot. It will uh, lead to uh, more club closures, uh, but it wouldn't change anything, at least on people's mind. So in your um, experience of what happened in Paris and the way things unfolded afterwards, there are no concrete steps or advice that you would say, now we know this, I wish that Berlin, I wish that London nightlife would do this one thing and that would make a difference. You don't feel that there were any takeaways from that, um, that you would, you would sort of preach that other people should do this? Oh, I wish I could have a magical solution that I could give to the world. <laughs> no, the, the one thing I would say is to take seriously the alert and um, uh, when people spot weird stuff, uh, that the police take it into account. Uh, because, for example, you know that the terrorists that attacked the Bataclan parked in their car 20 meters from the Bataclan for five hours. And actually one of the tenants of a bar called the police to say, there are weird people parking in, in the car, I don't know what they're doing. Uh, and he called maybe, I don't know, five times, six times, but the police wouldn't take it into, into account and they had other stuff to do. You shouldn't just like send a police car when you have somebody say there is somebody weird in front of my house because then you will have 1,000 call. But I don't know, they should be trained just to detect if the, um, the signal or the, the profile of the alert is a, a serious one or not. This is the only thing I, I could say. So something that we've begun to touch on um, is perhaps another kind of safety or security that may be in conflict with the kind of security that we talk about when we talk about um, securing a club from a terrorist attack, um, which is this idea of securing people's freedom to sort of let go or creating for them a secure space where they can make certain decisions that they might not make in, in real life and it won't have consequences. So I wanted to bring Luis in here. Uh, on the Facebook page for Room for Resistance, um, there is mention of this concept of a safe or at least of a safer space 
um, for the people who go to the party to feel safe, to be able to enjoy themselves. I wondered if you could kind of talk about this concept of the safe space that has been discussed quite a lot in club culture in the last few years, um, what precisely it means and um, what its parameters are. I mean, the, the safe space or safer spaces um, discourse has been around now for a few years in, in, in club culture, but it has a longer history that goes back at least as far as the the sort of post-punk hardcore scenes of the 90s, especially in uh, the riot girl scenes, where um, the articulation of safe space there was mostly safety from uh, things like misogyny, harassment on the, on the dance floor in the venue. You know, it had more to do with... Um, or it had less to do with creating a you know completely safe space where where no, nothing bad could happen, and more having to do with being actively against certain forms of oppression happening in the club, and having more than anything also having procedures in place when that happens. So you know, part of I think even now for for organizers and venues that are adopting that for for club spaces for dance music spaces, I think that's sort of where the emphasis is still or should be maybe um, is thinking about, you know, if, if you want to claim that your space is in some sense safe or safer, um, what measures are you taking to, you know, to, to address um, these issues, particularly ones that really impact, uh, you know, marginalized and or minority uh, dancers? What measures do you have, like, how you know, have you trained security to, like, inside the club to be, you know, aware of and to detect these sort of things? Are there procedures in place? Like, if, if for example, if somebody reports an incident of harassment, what do you do? Do you, you know, what do you do first? What do you do next? Um, how do you address that? You know, also, uh, how do you communicate that? Like one of the things that I think um, we've been learning through Room for Resistance, but I think also in talking to other, um, especially at other kind of queer dance music collectives in other cities that also struggle with this, um, you know, like like Siren in London, uh, which is a, a collective that we, we work a lot with. An important part is actually before the party even happens, communicating as best as you can through really sort of targeted channels. Um, like on the one hand, trying to really communicate to, to people that, you know, they're welcome here, that people who might not, who decide, might decide not to go out because they're going to assume by default it's a space that's not for them or it's a space that's not welcoming for them and so on. Trying to find ways to, to, to try to um, communicate that clearly. Um, but also trying to find ways to, to signal also maybe to other potential party goers that this might not be the space for them if, they do, if they're not ready to adhere to certain sort of con rules of conduct or expectations, right? So sort of setting expectations for what, for what the promoters and the venue can provide as far as protection and, and, and um, support, but also setting expectations for, for what for what we're sort of expecting from partygoers as well, what kinds of behaviors we were willing to tolerate or not willing to tolerate and so on. And then certainly another thing that comes up a lot is, is learning from feedback, which is I think a thing, I think that's a thing that's quite tough for a lot of promoters um, or just in general, people who work in these sorts of circles. You know, it's hard to get negative feedback. It's hard to, to hear that, you know, that something didn't go the way it was planned or, you know, or just frankly that, you know, as, as a collective, you fucked up that, you know, or something, you know, should have been done and wasn't done right. Having procedures in place for that, like having procedures for to get feedback, to kind of process the feedback as a collective, to make some decisions about, all right, how do we do this differently in the future, um, I think is something that's become uh, or something that's quite, quite useful as far as this is concerned. So why um, might clubs or music venues in particular have become a site where these kinds of discussions are being had and where people are striving for um, this particular kind of safety, if you like? For me, at least, um, 
you know, and admittedly, part of my perspective comes from the sorts of things I've written for RA, for example, and, and you know, where my focus is, um, you know, my interests are. One of the things that I've, I've tried to highlight in some of the research that I do and some of the writing that I do is the, you know, the historical roots of electronic music and dance music in queer scenes, in POC and people of color scenes, uh, in trans and non-binary scenes and so on, um, in scenes where these club spaces were, were you know, these club spaces um, ideally provided a kind of refuge that, you know, they've created, provided a space where people could go and, uh, you know, and live out a certain kind of life, a certain, you know, affirm a certain kind of identity um, uh, away from the toxicity of everyday life. You know, a, you know, it was a, in many ways, a way to, you know, to recharge your political energies, to, you know, to do lots of things. Um, and, so for me, at least, the, the history of dance music is bound up from the beginning with the, you know, with these marginalized identities, you know, of various sorts that intersect in lots of ways, um, and that's something that, as dance music has gotten bigger, especially as it's gone through cycles of sort of mainstream popularity and so on, those things become less visible. Those 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 characteristics, let's say, become less visible. Um, you know, we see that with the EDM boom, you know, as it happened in North America a few years ago, and kind of overall the world now, that uh, you know, once everybody joins in, then suddenly um, things get straighter, whiter, you know, cisgendered, er, and so on. Um, and there's, there's a lot of work to be done, I think, sort of like public, um, you know, public communication, public debate work to be done to sort of remind folks who've maybe joined this world later on, um, and especially who've joined it at a point when, when dance music has been kind of high profile and, and more general, let's say, to remind them of these quite specific histories. And at least for me, one thing I, 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 I try to articulate is that there's, there's an ethical component to that, right? That if you're committed to dance music um, and if you're committed to this sort of club culture, then you should necessarily also be committed to um, these, these, these sort of politics around, you know, around uh, minority uh, you know, rights, marginality, visibility, and, in, and invisibility. That's something um, you know, um, I'd be happy to come back to later on, like the, the question of when invisibility is actually protective. But yeah, I think overall, for me, that's where the connection is with the history of dance music. And because we've had this period in the last few years, I think of more sort of open discourse in music journalism, for example, revisiting these these historical roots and beginning to develop a sort of an, an, uh, a new sense of ethical uh, responsibility that these concerns about safe safe or safer spaces inclusivity um, visibility and visibility these all have become more relevant again I think or I hope um, I'm interested in the idea that the um, of the door to the club is perhaps the the point of tension where these kinds of um, issues play out um you know obviously the door to the club is the place where the real world with its particular inequalities and problems ideally ends and this better version of the world that the people organizing the club would like to exist begins so costina maybe you could talk a bit about how bouncers navigate this this tension between the outside world and the inside world yeah the, i think the promise of the night is that you leave the the real world outside at the door and you enter an alternate space and the strategy is that for a lot of people the real world doesn't end there uh, meaning that for example they are not let in and they experience the same systems of reading their bodies uh, their appearances and so on 
at the at the entrance of the door uh, at, to the to the nightclub. But first, perhaps to the safe spaces. Um, of course, the door here is a very important um, point or moment because this is also the moment where you have uh, the opportunity to talk directly to people and also in a very disciplined way because people, as long as they are not guests, they, of course, they, they want to become guests. They pull themselves together. They have a certain need to get in. Uh, and they are led as... A, I mean, as a queue, they're not a, a mass you're talking to, but you're individually talking to people. And it's the moment where you can also um, decide on just rejecting people or starting to talk to people, explaining to them, okay, what kind of party is this? What are our expectations? Um, are you ready for this or not, for example? Um, and either giving people a chance to, to get in and finding a safe space or giving people the chance to get in and experience something that they haven't experienced so far, and also changing their minds, changing whatever. <laughs> um, or is the chance to to select people out and say, no, I, I think you might not be the person that fits into this kind of safe space. The problem is, how do you define safety for the people inside? Because, of course... The way you look at people is a very superficial one. And of course, it's it might be at first be easy to detect, for example, people that by dress um, position themselves to a certain club culture or a certain subculture um, and seem to be fitting more into the safe space than others. But uh, the safe space is more than just uh, positioning yourself to, to the subculture. So, um, And this is where difficulties start. start. People fitting in at the first place uh, from the visibilities doesn't mean that they actually are safe for others because of course harassment still takes place also in safe spaces and the awareness teams they tell a lot i mean they have a lot of experiences that it actually still happens because uh, people transgress borders constantly or boundaries constantly in nightlife so i think the door is a uh, is one point but the other point is really having people inside, having bouncers also being trained on detecting uh, people without either being being addressed or by themselves, uh, or just taking taking uh, claims also serious, uh, and not just say, yeah, come on. It's just, you know, or smile it away or stuff like that. Um, and to take it serious, to take the feedback serious, and to, to really work on themselves. And uh, I think we have had recent experiences where things terribly went wrong and I hope that uh, yeah that they will work on it a lot of people also experience have really bad experience with bouncers because uh, and this was something for example I can tell from my own research uh, in one electronic uh, music venue where I did my research they had a really white crowd the typical student white creative crowd middle class so whenever there was somebody showing up that didn't fit into this, um, even though they had the whole discourse on uh, inclusivity, diversity, openness, they wanted to have a, um, a versatile uh, door stuff, but as soon as somebody showed up that was, for example, more sporty, more had more this street style and not the, the hipster style, for example, uh, uh, people were easily detected as... Uh, um, disturbing the atmosphere, not by be their behavior, but just by their looks. 
And if we start judging people by their looks and not by their behavior, it becomes very, very difficult. I guess implicit in this discussion we're having is that actually involved in, in uh, club music culture, there are many different actors, there are many different groups um, with different interests and different needs. And that when we talk about protecting uh, a club culture, actually what we're talking about is protecting many different groups who need different forms of protection. Uh, some, of, some of whom may find some forms of protection actually punitive or negative for them. Perhaps we could talk about this, um, in particular the racial dimension, um, of course implicit in uh, the discussion of terrorist attacks and, and protecting people from terrorist attacks. Um, where does this come into these discussions? Racial profiling is real. It's uh, you know it happens. Uh, I'm I'm like a bit of a racial Rorschach test because I'm I'm Latino but with a beard and vaguely Mediterranean looking. So depending on what country I'm in and how well I've groomed myself, I read as all sorts of different things. That has rarely been a problem for me in like Berlin clubs, but that's partially because of you know like I'm more. That's partially how I present. I present you know I have big gauged ear piercings. Uh, you know I usually am pretty visibly queer from a distance, so to speak, and all those things. And that seems to somehow mitigate some of that. But, you know, other friends of mine who are brown and more straight presenting um, will sometimes have problems getting into clubs. Uh, and certainly, you know, in other cities and other scenes, that's also a problem as well. Decisions can and often are made on appearance, but that can be quite different from, from behavior and in both directions as well. People can look like they, you know, like they're, 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 you know, they're cool, so to speak, that like they're, they're f f informed and conscious and aware and so on, um, and nonetheless have, you know, really, really kind of problematic behaviors in the club. Um, and one of the things that I've sort of noticed from one club to another is that there's a lot of different sort of styles of bouncing, you know, of, of being a bouncer, and that it'd actually be really cool to have, you know, to, to have had like a bouncer here on stage as well to sort of talk about this, somebody who has experience, um, you know, but like as, as you were describing, Christine, like there's... In, in at many clubs, not all, but you know, many clubs, the bouncers will have a short conversation with people before making a decision, and often they're sort of evaluating the interaction, seeing how they respond, seeing how the, how they react to their encounter with with bouncers. But that can also be like that's not a perfect instrument in the sense that you know folks who have a history of bad experiences with with you know with bouncers or with kind of authorities, police, and so on. Are, you know they have that history with them as well and that's of course going to impact how they respond like in the sense of being nervous or being defensive or you know or you know or what have you and that that then disadvantages them at the door you know so that's a real sort of difficult knot to sort of untie is how do you you know how can bouncers also and door staff in general um, approach things in ways that don't sort of trigger um, you know, uh, response, uh, sort of defensive or negative responses um, from people who have very good reasons to be really worried about about um, about that sort of a thing. One of the things that we've thought about a lot um, for Room for Resistance, at least, is we've tried to, in various ways, reach out to um, to the sort of younger queer refugee community here and try to find ways for them to come to the party if they want and and uh, to party to. You know, to to get in, but also to to enjoy their time here, and that's really that's also tough. It involves a lot of talking to both sides, so to speak. Like we do, whenever our parties happen, we do before the party starts. Talk to the door staff, 
tell them who we're expecting, who we want in, what kind of people we want in. We're very explicit to say that includes, you know, people with migrant backgrounds and with refugee backgrounds. Um, and we always ask them, you know, if you could, could you please be as, you know, as sort of friendly and polite and as soft, so to speak, as you can. You know, we remind them that for many of them, being searched, like being frisked at the door, is going to bring up memories of very unpleasant experiences, you know, so to, to be as, you know, also gentle when doing searches and so on. Um, and we'll see over time if, if that makes a difference. But, you know, we do that on the one hand. And then at the other hand, we also are trying more and more to find ways to also go to to these groups, you know, to the centers um, or to, you know, to communicate also to them what to expect at the club. So, you know, the, this is how partying works in Berlin, so to speak. This is what to expect at the door. Um, these are how things happen inside. These are the things that are tolerated inside. These are the things that are not. Um, these are your rights as well. Like if this happens to you, you have a right to complain about it. These sorts of things. Uh, and what what I've sort of picked up from that experience um, is is precisely that it's, it needs to be sort of a multi-faceted strategy that you can't you can't just talk to one person involved in that situation you have to sort of talk to many of the people who are involved and do your best to try to to communicate or try to model what you know what would be sort of ideal interactions uh, when we talk about um security in clubs in response to a terror threat um is it always necessarily these groups that you're discussing who suffer first from these measures? I would speculate so. That's like not something that I can back up with, you know, with numbers, so to speak. Um, but, uh, you know, that would be, that'd be my, my sort of initial impression. When there were the London Bridge attacks um, a couple months ago, um, I was down in London for a meeting um, in the city center, very close to London Bridge proper. Um, and I was there to, you know, for a sort of, you know, business professional engagement, so I was like nicely dressed and so on, had, or had, you know, formal wear on. Um, but I also had like a little roll, a holkofa, like a little, um, you know, wheelie trolley or, or bag or what have you, um, for, you know, as like my overnight bag. Uh, and so I was going around town, including to places, high security, sort of like, or high impact terrorist uh, or potential terror spaces, like the National Library and so on, um, you know, going to, to meet people and so on. And I did notice that the, you know, when I would approach buildings or when I would sort of stand in the middle of the street, not going anywhere, you know, checking my phone with this thing next to me, this, this, you know, perfectly bomb sized sort of thing, um, you know, that, that, uh, you know, people would look twice, people would sort of give me a second look, um, door guards and so on would, would notice me right away and then watch me very carefully as I moved through the space, you know, and that creates all these anxieties in, 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 you know, in myself in the sense that I, then I would get over, over conscious, so to speak, and I'd be policing my own behavior, trying to like act cool, you know, try to act non-threatening, even though at the same time, you know, at the beginning, you know, from the beginning, I was not up to anything, so to speak. Um, but you know, from those sorts of experiences, from talking to other folks as well, who who would sort of scan as as you know, coming from um, sort of Mediterranean and Middle Eastern backgrounds, I, th I think there is always there there is always a, a bit of a kind of a backlash or like an intensified scrutiny. I think is a better way of putting it. There's there's a period where you're watched a bit more closely. Um, where you know doors shut a little bit more to you, and so on. So in that sense, I think yeah, there's there's more of an impact on on club goers who who belong to to ethnic groups that are associated uh, with terrorism. I would totally 
agree to that. And I think the problem of the terror attacks, they create a stereotype. Uh, and they're just the tip of the iceberg on stereotyping certain groups of people by very broad um, features that they carry, such as the beard, the brown, uh, the brown eyes, uh, the, the black hair, um, the, the forms of masculinity, for example. And I mean, this is the one that comes from the terror attack. The other thing that is experienced by a lot of uh, black men, for example, is the drug dealer. So it's these kind of stereotypes that uh, are like people have to um, distance themselves from, and uh, which leads to experience that people are more intensely policed, that they have to prove more intensely that they are uh, harmless, that they are nice, that they are friendly. They have to make more efforts at the door to prove that they are not a threat to anybody, uh, and of course this is uh, <laughs> exhausting. And uh, a lot of uh, moments at the doors, these, this leads, leads to a lot of conflicts, to a lot of failed situations for both sides, I would say. Um, and it also leads to not, I mean, we're always talking about the door stuff, but the other thing is the people inside and people in nightlife. And uh, a lot of uh, things that, uh, moments where security comes into action, it means that people tell on other people. Which is good, because it means that they, they trust securities, that they know that they can go there with their, with their, their, their issues. But uh, as I could see, in, for example, when it comes to sexual harassment, which is of course not terror attacks, but um, the, the system behind it is quite the same. So I was uh, in three different clubs, and one of them was electronic music, and it had this very homogeneous crowd. Uh, the second one was punk rock metal, it had a very white Uh, all clientele, but a very socially speaking, very versatile. And the third one was hip hop dancehall, so they had a very um, international crowd. And uh, when it came to sexual harassment, it took place in all three clubs. In the punk rock and in the hip hop clubs, peop uh, men and women alike, they quite frequently went to the bouncers to report sexual harassment or the moment where they f felt unsafe. And in the electronic club, even though they put a lot of effort and they employed women, so it was easier for women to go there and to report uh, harassment and all these incidents. In the two months that I have been there, nobody ever came. Even though I know from women that were guests there that they actually were harassed. So like people grabbed them and all that. And one of my explanations to that is that people are more ready to report others when it's heterogeneous, when they are others when it's it's more diff uh, it's it's easier to report them if they're not from your own group so i think the problem is with the the terror attacks if we take them too serious and the the drug dealing and all that it's we create a very specific idea of um, of bodies to read uh, of people to read uh, we educate of course people to report on uh, on on things that are different Which is good because, as you said, the people are they, they. For example, they detected somebody in front. It's it's weird that somebody is five hours in the in the car, but where do we start uh, taking things that serious? And and does it mean that we kind of we feed into a system that polices some people very intensely and leaves all the others that are as bad <laughs> as the others uh, leave them kind of freer to go? In light of of this what's just been discussed and of what Celine was saying earlier in terms of the, the statistical improbability of, of terrorism of course it has a large symbolic 
power to induce fear, but statistically it's very unlikely to happen to any individual. Um, is it in fact harmful to treat the question of a terrorist threat to clubs, to take it seriously and to discuss it as if it's a really important issue that needs to be solved? Is that in itself damaging? Yeah. I think that um, there is one very important word that was said is integration, inclusion. And I'm not sure that uh, terrorists uh, are people that get rejected at uh, club doors because uh, I, I didn't study the profiles of terrorists, but they are people that have a special life, special life uh, uh, ways. Uh, but that were people that got rejected by the system. Uh, clubs, of course, but also education, uh, work, whatsoever. Uh, they live in suburbs where the police will not go, where the doctors will not go anymore because there is this climate of violence. And uh, I think, but this is my opinion, it is important to discuss terrorism and the reason of not why, we're not talking about why Daesh is doing that. We're talking about why people living in the country get involved and are ready to uh, kill themselves uh, to kill others. And uh, integration and inclusion is definitely what we should work on and what we should discuss. How do we get back those people who are completely living in a parallel world? Uh, I'm thinking about Paris. You have Paris and you have a lot of suburbs that have become um, just like no man's rules, no police there, nobody go there. Uh, and it's terribly dangerous, and there is nothing done to this town. Um, and I think this is a really important subject to discuss, is how you integrate or you include these people back the same way you're doing uh, in clubs. Mm. I'm constantly looking at the surveillance camera there on the poster. <laughs> so, and I think uh, it's important, uh, I, I totally share your ideas, and um, because I also think that nightlife is the moment to experiment and to to cross social borders. Uh, and I, I would add that a different problem is also that, uh, as you have been talking about the constant state of emergency and how it is used to uh, transgress laws by law enforcement, for example, that normally yeah, are in, in place, um, we should also discuss what we are ready to give up in the face of terror. And this is also taking place in nightlife because uh, we can... Uh, see in nightlife um, a moment where public and private security kind of, they get into partnerships, which is considered as something good, but it means also that the, it's, it's not so easy for people anymore to know when they are policed or when they are not policed. And uh, a lot of uh, people, they think they go to nightclubs and think they are in a safe space for various reasons. Um, to uh, for sexual behavior, for drug consumption, for all that. And if we let go this this uh, safety of also being not uh, like controlled and not watched by public uh, security enforcement, if we let this go because we let them inside the nightclubs, this also means that people get controlled in very intimate spaces. And terror and violence, there are always uh, these moments where people are very ready and very easy to, to let go 
these ideas of protecting uh, freedom and the protecting um, private spaces just for the idea of more security. And so I think it's it's very important to have this discussion because it, it goes into a broader understanding of you know, of protection of privacy. <clears throat> my mother is from, from Peru originally, my father's from Colombia, and both were growing up, um, and, and they eventually emigrated out of there and into Canada, where I was born, because of you know, states of insecurity. Um, both countries actually are a lot more stable now, but during the time when I was born and, and, and quite young, you know, uh, attacks of various sorts, you know, um, terrorist attacks, but also just individual sort of opportunistic attacks like kidnapping and so on. And, and, uh, all of that was, was, was uh, common and it, or it was common enough that it was an everyday concern that people would, you know, were, were thinking about that. But at the same time, people still went out, people still went to clubs. Um, you know, people still also went to public spaces, um, you know, and, and part of that is a certain kind of normalization of, of, of violence, including mass violence, which on the one hand, obviously is, um, you know, is, is a sad thing, right? It's not something that you necessarily want to celebrate. Um, but nonetheless, there was something I really sort of noted in the way that my parents both thought about risk um, and, and sort of the risk of public space. You know, when, when I would talk to my parents um, about going to a movie theater in Lima, for example, um, during a time when it was quite dangerous and, and movie theaters were one of the favorite places for, um, for the Centro Luminoso, for the shining path to attack, um, uh, they, you know, her, her response is always like, yeah, well, yes, of course there's a risk, but I'm not going to stop living. Um, and, you know, that if we stop going out, then, then, you know, then they win, so to speak. So there was a sense, an almost sort of a, a moral obligation to go on living your life and to, in fact, go out and be, you know, go out and continue to do the things that, you know, a terrorist attacker would, um, to some degree, sort of object to or, or, or judge harshly, um, you know, as a form of sort of disobedience, as a form of, reclaiming public space as a way of, of insisting that you're also a citizen, you're also, you know, a resident of the city and, and that you also have a right to this, to, um, to go out. But, you know, part of that is paid with your own body that you're, you know, part of the risk, the gamble you take is with your own safety and with your own body. To some degree, I kind of think that some of the anxieties that we're experiencing now or some of the, the conversations we're having now about, you know, um, you know, terrorism risk in nightlife spaces, you know, some of that is, is, to me at least, just part of the kind of, you know, Western, first world, more privileged world entering into a situation that the rest of the world's been living with for ages. You know, that this is, to some degree, if you want advice on how to deal with this, you know, go, go to speak to folks who party in, in, in sort of less stable parts of the world, um, you know, in quotation marks. On the one hand, that's not to dismiss concerns about security, um, but I think there's, there may be other ways to think about the, the balance between freedom, risk, security, and so on, that doesn't have like perfect safety as its target, right? Or, you know, or that doesn't necessarily aim towards full control and aim towards, um, you know, zero risk. Uh, and to some degree, I think that also the communities that were historically at the root of dance music, um, you know, were, were also aware of that for, you know, for the longest time. I mean, attacks on queer spaces, especially queer nightlife spaces, go back a long time, well before sort of this modern articulation of, of, of terrorism. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the upstairs lounge in New Orleans, um, you, know, um, you know, many other spaces. There's, I think there was a sense in which many folks of, you know, queer folks, folks of color, trans and, and non-binary folks, they have a much longer history of thinking about the risk of, you know, when you go out, passing through no-go zones in, in your city, um, you know, taking, you know, being well aware of, of the risks that are involved in, in nightlife. 
um, in light of that, could you talk about um, Pulse? Because you have written about um, the aftermath of the, of the Pulse shooting in Orlando and um, the ways in which the queer community worldwide perhaps understood that from a different angle because of the things you were just discussing as mainstream society did in the US who attempted to frame it as a, an attack on their liberties or, or you know, however you want to put it. So perhaps you could talk a bit about the tensions there between the way the queer community experienced it and, and mainstream society. Sure. Sure. There's a few different things that I noticed, um, like during the, the, the days and then months, weeks and then months um, after the, uh, the pulse shootings. One of the, like, I think one of the, the, let's say the sort of interesting and positive things that I saw to that was actually a real uh, sort of resurgence of what I would call queer public intimacy. So the way in which people online, people who didn't know each other, um, would post these really, um, really intimate and very kind of emotional, affective um, narratives of their own experiences. Like many people came and, and wrote testimonies about when I, you know, when I went to my first queer club, it, you know, it saved my life or it, you know, it, it prevented me from, you know, from suicide or it like, you know, or changed me in these various ways. So there are lots of people who would share these very personal stories of what clubs, specifically, you know, queer clubs and, and queer of color clubs, you know, Latinx spaces, especially what that meant to them, um, why these are important. Um, and then, and also um, that helped to sort of articulate better why this attack felt to at least to that community, felt like uh, an especially deep sort of violation, right? That many people, or many of the, the, the testimonies that I was reading um, would talk about spaces as refuges, sanctuaries, uh, so on. Like they would use these words that, uh, that described nightlife space as, you know, as a safer, safer space, but also as a space, you know, as, as a retreat from the dangers and the toxicity of, of everyday life and so on. So to have to have the toxicity of the outside world come into the space that they that they had built themselves and that they thought was was um, you know was was protected from those things to have the violence come in there is you know is especially deep so to speak um, so through that through that sort of sharing of these these testimonies through a lot of sort of collective talk. Uh, about the significance, the, the kind of very specific significance of these attacks to to these sort of communities, um, you know, I got this sense that there was sort of a, a public intimacy. There was this way in which uh, a sense of sort of belonging uh, to a much larger community through having experienced these things, through having struggled, through having risked and felt, you know, felt in danger and these sorts of things, you know, that there was a sort of a resurgence that in some ways is positive. There was a lot of, I mean, for there was a lot of widely published and broadly read articles about, you know, about queer and POC Latinx spaces in, in North America. You know, a wider public of people learned a lot, I hope, uh, about, you know, about the significance of these spaces and their histories and so on, and also the history of homophobic attacks. Um, but another thing that I, that I noticed very early on, actually, was that um, there were a number of sort of vocal uh, people within sort of the club or the, the the queer of color kind of blogosphere who very quickly moved to say, you know, whatever this is, we want to resist this being reframed as they hate our freedom sort of terrorist attack, which could then be mobilized for Islamophobic and racist uh, sorts of discourse, right? So there was a lot of pushback, thankfully, um, by folks who said, you know, we don't want this to be part of a kind of a homo-nationalist sort of uh, logic where attack on queer folks then justifies new attacks 
you know, on brown folks elsewhere in the world or in, in the US itself. Um, and whether or not that's happened or whether, you know, whether or not that has been prevented is, is still to be, to be, you know, to be shown, so to speak. It's, we're, we're kind of in early days still, a little bit more than a year since the attack. But that was something at least that sort of, that, that I was struck by was how quickly uh, people, people within that community were thinking of that possibility and trying to prevent it and trying to say, look, you know, this is, this was in fact, folks of color who, you know, who were also attacked. And we, you know, we, we don't want our, you know, our, um, our suffering, so to speak, or, or this, this tragedy to then be used to create more tragedies for other folks of color in other places. So perhaps in that sense, um, when we think about um, attacks on club culture particularly, and club culture's responses to them, it's worth thinking about what narratives we may unwittingly be playing into and, and perhaps struggling collectively to resist that and to, um, and to try and frame things in, in a, a more constructive and positive way. Yeah, for sure. There's a way in which, um, like, in, in the, the scholarship around trauma and, like, traumatic events and so on, um, one of the most common ways of, of sort of theorizing trauma is to say that, you know, trauma is the experience that is impossible to narrativize, that it's impossible to kind of put into a narrative, that if you have your sort of first-person perspective narr life narrative, that what makes trauma, traumatic experience dramatic is precisely that it's so extreme and often so unexpected that it sort of ejects you from any sense of a linear story. And then the, the difficulty of dealing with trauma afterwards is finding ways to reattach it back to the rest of your sense of the world and of your, of your life story and so on. And so that means that when these sorts of things happen, when these sort of shocking incidents happen, there is afterwards this real impulse to, to connect these to a narrative. I mean, you even saw this last year with um, some of the... the the kind of music journalism or after the pulse attacks that, um, you know, many, for many, the, the, the impulse was to, to use this, um, incident to recall for everyone this much longer history of homophobic violence in nightlife spaces, you know, and, and, and to sort of connect it back into a longer history so that it's not just this one individual thing, but it's part of a longer pattern and a systemic thing that, uh, that we know that we want to think about. Um, but it can also be narrativized in really problematic ways. It can be used cynically for all sorts of political interests as well. So there's, uh, there is this impulse to narrativize, and I, I think it's difficult to really deny people that. Like, you can't say, you know, this, this is a completely unique incident, and we cannot connect it to anything else in the world. Um, but we, we can certainly be very thoughtful and careful about how that happens. And we can be aware of when it is being narrativized in ways that are dangerous uh, and try to interfere.